hierarchy. The church is set up as a hierarchical structure. And so its leadership is not biblical. It's got a corporate style of leadership. And so when you have a corporate style of leadership, you're going to get a, a corporate institutional style of ministry. Whether you like it or not, uh, leadership is not found from the world's view. And forgive me, I know some of you here are watching and learning from great leadership gurus. But if you do that, you lose the very heart of the reason why the Holy Spirit is here. And he's to lead us into all truth and show us that which is to come and prepare us and speak the words of the Father into our hearts so that we are able to do his will. But if we're going to be looking at man-made systems of the world, you might as well just go and get a heresy book and, and put alongside your Bible because there are management systems that are contrary to the scriptures that are based on manipulation and based upon how to uh, influence people and how to bring them into your, into your mission. If you do that, you don't have room for the Holy Spirit. You're working your own systems to be able to fulfill your own functions. And when you do that, I, mean, they will, I hear somebody saying to me now, well, we can take some of the good stuff. I mean, not all uh, leadership stuff is bad because if you look at the scriptures, you see leaders there. Hey, but remember, the leaders that you see all have problems and failures. There's no, no one that didn't, buy, uh, didn't show and exhibit uh, potential poor leadership uh, qualities, but yet God used them in spite of that. So when we're now starting to call it master the skill of leading people, very much of these, I, I've done so many of these leadership courses uh, when we start to do that, what we tend to do is we, 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 became, we are becoming masters of manipulators. And when you become masters of manipulators, you're going to tend to draw your strength from the manipulation of uh, gaining people's uh, influence rather than the Holy Spirit working in the hearts to bring about conviction, discipleship, and maturity in Christ. And so... Uh, a good example is, uh, I'm not going to mention the book, not the, not the author, uh, but you must be familiar with him. He talks about how to influence a group of people, and, uh, and there's various uh, leadership Christian um, role models that we can follow into how, in how they have influenced their people. And the mistake we make is to think that these people that we are leading is our people. They're not our people. We are all co-laborers. You and I are working for the same master. His name is Master Jesus. It's his church, not our church. And he wants to influence his world uh, for the kingdom. It's his kingdom that he's bringing into. He's, he's raising them up. But when we think that we are the great shepherd, the great teacher, and the great father, we become a pope like the Catholics to our church members. And then we take the place of Christ. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit has no room to, to, to lead and guide us. And so we can see, uh, uh, let's go to the book of James. And then you're going to see in James, it shows you that there is a wisdom that's demonic. You may think it's Christian being wise, but it's actually demonic. And being demonic is that you are fulfilling your own kingdom within a kingdom so there's a church within this church 
and this church is functioning rogue. And that church is not the real church. That's a make-believe. It resembles, it, it, looks in, it, it looks in appearance of, but has no power. And that's the reason why a lot of the ministers now are going into the black arts to be able to develop power so that these gullible people now can also follow uh, this priest, prophet, and king. Once you've got this priest, prophet, and king, you must ask the question to your own self and to myself is, have I replaced Jesus? And if we have, then we have a big problem because if we've replaced Jesus in our, in our representation of what we should be doing, we are that master, we are that servants, like when, the, when, when he sent his servant to come and look at the tenants. So when he sent the servants to go and tell the tenants that the master is coming, what did they do? They wanted to kill him. So he sent his own son and they killed him, the, the parable of the tenants. So we must remember that the house don't belong to us. We are merely just there for a moment. If we are to fulfill God's plan, we've got to be close to the Holy Spirit as to what is it the Father's will for where you are located, where you are geographically positioned. And as we spoke earlier, even though no one may know you where you are or the world may not know you, but if Jesus knows you, You've, you are better off giving that glass of water to the least than having a name heralded throughout the world, but Jesus don't know you. That's the painful part. So as we look at James chapter 3, verse 13. I'll give you a time to go there. But go open your Bible so you know where I'm. I'm not using some other Bible. Okay, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You know, the way the world is set up now is that by sure in your heart, you and I are hungering for success. We all want to be a success, but success has been redefined to that which is big, to that which is glorious, to that which is influential. And success is not that which does the Father's will when nobody sees it. So we have that to deal with. So when he says here, you have bitter jealousy, and when you look at the word jealousy, the word jealousy, uh, it means that of envy, uh, excitement of mind, fervent of spirit. You, you are, and I are fiercely wanting to be uh, preaching, not the gospel because it saved our lives, not the gospel because it brings salvation, but because that other brother is doing it and you think you can do it better than he can, or you want that what he has. And so therefore we do that. And then ambition. Ambition is, to, uh, is a distinction, a desire to put oneself forward. God's promotion is not as important as my promotion. And it's about me trying to strive and contend for that which I'm having a picture of. And if you are familiar with some uh, name it and claim it, guys. One of the major ones is Norman Vincent Peale, how to 
win friends and what influence friends or something like that. And here he shows you how to get what you want if you visualize it. So can you visualize your ministry? Can you visualize God wants to extend your boundaries? Or do you have a picture of it? You see, everything that comes out from here is uh, the natural mind of man is at enmity to God. And if you're having pictures rather than belief and faith or fulfilling the master's will, we have a problem because now it's no longer the we walk in faith, but we're walking in visual and we are trying to even picture ourselves in it. Is This is what the occults do. And we can call it the charismatic uh, sense of being able to ask God for a picture. But God wouldn't just speak with a picture. Why would he speak with a picture when he's got the Holy Spirit living in you, giving you the very words that God would say and speak into your heart? So you've got that. Uh, but it says, show his works in meekness of wisdom. And meekness of wisdom, once I, I, I read somewhere that uh, meekness is like, having the ability like an ant that's walking past you and it's uh, you have the right you you have the ability to crush that ant just like just crush it but the the restraint to do that which you can uh, in that which you, that might the ability to do it is that sort of meekness of wisdom knowing we have that confidence that's assurance but if i look at its greek word it's the mildness of disposition gentleness of spirit meekness and we read that moses was a meek man and so we got to, we're looking at that right and then we go of wisdom and this is the one that i need to talk to you about is this is the decide the deciphering the the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of man and wisdom is sophia it's uh philosophy we get the lover of wisdom now one may say well, uh, philosophy is not good, but there is a philosophy to nothing, but a, a, a lover of good wisdom, because you get the proverb, you've got lady wisdom and you've got dame folly. So we are to love wisdom, wisdom that is divine, that is from God. Then, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, you do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So all that I said above about self, about uh, putting yourself forward, about uh, easily to crush that which is around you, showing no constraint, is that which is not from God. And it says, but the wisdom that is from above is pure. So we look at the word pure, hagios, pure, uh, that which is of reverence, that which is of sacred, then it's peaceable, that which is uh, from a place of peace. I don't have to explain peace to you. Gentle, that which is patient, moderate. Then open to reason. What does this word reason mean? It's easily obeying, compliant, not constantly uh, in dissension. Full of mercy. Mercy as in uh, mercy, kindness, or goodwill towards the miserable, uh, it is uh, men towards men, to exercise a virtue of mercy is to show oneself merciful. And good fruits, and fruits is that which would be uh, that which is of, the, of its origin, uh, a fruit of one's loins, for example. Impartial, 
we go to impartial let's go see what impartial means there impartial means undistinguishable without dubiousness ambiguity or uncertainty and then sincere so everything you can see here is of this holiness order it's of a, a purity and so that is our motivation that's our wisdom our wisdom is that which has no hidden motives no sense of uh call it self will it's all his will not my will but his will and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace to those who make peace and this is why is quarrels the writer says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you what causes church splits and what causes brothers and sisters to fight in the church is it not that your passions what passions your pleasures your desires the gratification of the flesh that which is is pulling you and alluring you that which is calling you to to be at war with who your brother no with yourself check it out war within you the war is not out there it's inside here so now because you have this sort of jealousy envy selfish ambitions boastful and uh, false truth the enemy has been lying to you not successful you need to be like this you need to do like this you need to be a good ministry so you run here for this event you run here for that event and we constantly being bombarded with all this information only because we want to be successful but in doing so you know what's the problem here yeah? in doing so there's a war going on inside the minister's heart that even on a sunday he's while he's preaching the message he's comparing himself to maybe a, a more successful brother frank i think you're you just go on to mute there for a moment for me brother frank any chance you can go on mute i am unable to mute you for some reason okay that's better so we've we, oh he's come off so we've got this problem and this problem is this this challenge we have as ministers to be satisfied in god to be content in him to be happy where god has placed us that's quite a, a challenge because in this world that we live in with in this world that we're living in sorry i'm trying to put the brother mute still i think this thing doesn't want to go mute uh what to do okay so with this world that we are living thanks brother frank appreciate that so in this world that we are living in with instagram with facebook naturally most of us here are placing ourselves in a position that is not bringing peace to ourselves because we're wanting to be successful in light of what the world is looking as success and therefore these quarrels are, are amongst ourselves we are fighting with these passions that's inside these passions are not placed by god it's placed by our own selfish desires as we read earlier it's placed by our own jealousy it's placed by our own uh boasting wanting to boast and with all that we've got a problem you desire look at verse 2 check what verse 2 says you desire and you do not have so i want i want this and i want that and i i want god to give me i want god to give me this and i want god to give me that and i'm praying for it now 
we can pray witchcraft prayers and witchcraft prayers are that which is not the will of god we are trying to manipulate god to be able to do something that we that is not in his will and so we try everything possible so that we could get get him to be to move his arm because we don't know his will so we're guessing that maybe god is calling me to do this and then maybe he's asking me to build this big church big church that's my legacy but that legacy has nothing okay there we go that's my goodness i'm having some problems with my okay so that that legacy or that uh, vision that we are having it's got nothing to do with what God has asked us to do. And so we are frustrated by ourselves. We feel we've not achieved that. And then we see and say, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. What is it that you murder? That is, you want to slay, that is which you are, you want to kill. Why do you want to kill? It's because you, you covet and you cannot obtain. Covet. So how is it that pastor, I'm better than him. He's got a bigger church than I do. He's, he's driving a new car. You know me, I, I'm actually not, I'm not I, I know God should have given it to me. And so now you're coveting. You cannot obtain it. And now you fight and you quarrel. And now you, you may not necessarily be fighting and quarreling amongst the person that is in that church or that pastor that we've coveted. You're fighting in, and you're quarreling even in your home, even with the people around you. And we all are like that, is that we are frustrated. That's why. So you have, you do not have, is because you do not ask. But you say, but I've been asking all along and I've been asking God to give me this. And he says, verse three, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? You're spending it on your passions. And what do we know about verse one in passions? It is not this that your passions are at war with you. <laughs> so you've got a problem here. The problem is that you have this passion inside here that's a raging war and you're praying and God is not answering. And he's not answering because you're asking wrongly. That's what it says. Very, it's very clear. We're not even gone further into the text. But just the verse, the verse 3 has shown us that our passions cause us to move away from the will of God. When you start to wanting to murder because you covered, because you do not have, is you become like Cain. You want to then do your own city, your own will, your own plan outside the will of God, outside where God says, well, you can't live here anymore. You must move away from my presence. And so when you move away from, your, from God's presence, you will become an adulterous person. It says, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, I can't, I can't simplify this any, simple, any simpler than it's already been indicated here. It says that, that do you not know that if you love the things of this world and the passions and the pleasures of this world and you're looking to that which is from your eyes, like how Eve looked at the fruit, oh, it was good for food, so it's good for the stomach. Oh, it's good to make one wise, it's good for the mind, it's good for wisdom to make you intelligent and uh, you'll be like God. And it makes you have that sense of pride to even go above God. Once you have that love for this world, you are an enemy of God. You've taken the place of his walking you through the ministry. So you do not have because 
you do not ask. You ask and you ask wrongly because you spend it on your passions. Your adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wants to be, let's put it this way, whoever loves this world to a point that it's deviated from the ministry of God, you've gone astray in that your passions are now controlling you. You're an enemy of God, even though you may be on the pulpit on a Sunday. If your ambition is outside the will of God, separate to his will, so when Jesus is at the garden and he says, Father, if it is at all possible, take this cup from me. He says, not my will, but your will. Whereas Adam and Eve, when they came to the garden, they had the opportunity to look at this fruit and say, they, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, but you will die. You'll be separated. And so they chose to eat of it. And so we too are confronted with the two wills, the will to do our own will and God's will. And the only way to do God's will is not by, forgive me for saying this, it's not by trying to go and climb the highest mountain and see what he lays in the wilderness. So simple. It's no longer like a struggle 40 years in the desert. It's the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He is as close as to your breath. And he, he, he speaks to the Father. He knows the will of the Father. He knows the mind of the Father. He also helps us in our prayers to be able to, to speak out that which we cannot speak out. We don't even know ourselves what to speak out. But the Holy Spirit does that. And that's why when we pray, we pray amiss. We pray, we don't know. We, we pray, but we do not receive because we're asking wrong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not involved in our prayers. It's our passions and desires, our wills and ambitions that bring about our will instead of His will. And when our will comes in play, we want to be a murderers. We covered this, we don't get it. We're upset. We're not at peace. We, we're constantly striving. And we're thinking we're doing God's work. And, but the heart of the fact is that we're an enemy of him, verse 4. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealousy over the spirit and that he has made us to dwell in? But he gives more grace, and therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is the heart of it, is that I, I believe that as ministers of the gospel, is that humility is a challenge for all of us at some point. We like to be confident and competent in our ability to be, to be, to be in authority. But to do that without the Holy Spirit, to, to do that without God working in our hearts and speaking through us through the Holy Spirit, we're doing it in our own strength. And to do it in our own strength, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is the problem, is that we've not resisted the devil because we are in the world as much as the world is in us. And Christ, where we should have been putting off the world and putting on Christ, we've done the opposite. And now the church is as bad as the world because we ourselves have not been separated from the world. And, and that's what I want to share with you is that you've got this, this conflict going on. And it's a conflict that the devil is instigated because he wants us 
to be at enmity with God. And the way to do it is to lure us, just like Jesus was lured at the, at the, uh, in the wilderness. The first one was turn these stones into bread. And that's the allurement that the enemy is placing in yours and my heart is with you're seeking for bread constantly. And we are at that stage. But then some who have overcome that stage are now being placed at the temple top. And we said, you see, I'll give you this. You can fall out. You, you test me in your, in your understanding of your faith in God. Jump off here. And you see the angels will give you a charge. You're putting God to test now. Some have passed that test. But now we've been shown the kingdoms of the world. And the world looks very beautiful to us. It looks as if this is the success I've been waiting for. God must have blessed me with this. And then we fall at that. And we've negated the fact that there is a spiritual kingdom that looks far beautiful beyond this one. And we've settled in for receiving the fruits of this world, negating the spiritual blessing that God has prepared for us. In doing so, we sell short. And so the question to all our hearts, yours and mine, is that have we replaced that which the will the Father has put in our own hearts to do? Or can we not hear it any longer that we have to copy somebody else, that we have to try to preach like somebody else, uh, behave like somebody else, or even want what others have? So I was in Kenya at a pastor's conference. I was teaching some pastors at a theological school. And as I was uh, preaching, an elderly pastor stood up and said, uh, what should I do with my daughter who wants to go to university? What shall I tell her that, and if I don't preach the gospel for money? Uh, how should I earn a living? And I didn't know how to answer it. But I, I sensed the Holy Spirit dealing with me with that question. So I said to him, well, you will tell your daughter that you've chosen to follow Jesus and denied this world, that you may not have all that others have, but you are a child of a minister for the gospel. And he will look after you just as he looked after your daddy. And the whole room, you could see, start tearing up, including myself breaking down, thinking to myself, such a hard message. That's what the gospel is about. It's about your relationship to God only, not your congregation, not your accolades or what you've achieved it's you and the father and what is the father saying to you what passions at war at war within you that's not keeping you at peace you've got to remove it because perfect peace is what he gives not like this world and that anything that drives that peace to cause you to be mad needs to be brought low and submit to the lordship of jesus christ it has to it cannot function together. How can light and darkness dwell together? It cannot dwell together. One has to be rejected. And you can't serve mammon nor God either. So one has to be rejected. Let's pray and then we'll open to questions. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in questions that you may have as to how does we as believers live in these two kingdoms, a kingdom in spiritual heavenly and a kingdom of this world. And your eschatology would determine where you think your kingdom lies. If you believe that uh, Jesus is coming back and uh, you need to reign and prepare for him, well, then 
you've got to grab up as much gold as you can. But if you believe that there is a new kingdom and a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, then you know you're just a pilgrim passing through. The city which Abraham looked, which hands of that city was not built with man's hands, but God's. That's the city we need to be hoping and looking towards. Hope when there's no hope. Let's just pray for this. And let's just ask the Lord to work in our own hearts, just as um, looking at the passions that we falsely have placed before him. So we're talking about justification. And before we go on to justification, let's just recap. It is the gospel's call when God calls us to put our faith in Christ for salvation. Uh, regeneration is when God gives us a new life and a conversion in which we respond to the gospel's call in repentance for sin and faith in Christ for salvation. But what about our sin's guilt? The gospel's invitation invites us to put our faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. Regeneration enables us to respond to that invitation. Now, we did respond in conversion, trusting in Christ for sin's forgiveness. And the next step in the process of applying redemption to us is for God to respond to our faith by doing what he promised, namely declaring our sins forgiven. Now, this must be a legal declaration about our relationship to God's laws, stating that we have been completely forgiven and are no longer subject to punishment. A correct understanding of justification is critical to the entire Christian faith. It was Martin Luther who became a Christian and overflowed with newfound joy of the gospel after realizing that the truth of justification by faith alone. Now, this main point of contention in the Protestant Reformation was a disagreement between the Roman Catholic Church over justification. Now, we must understand the truth of justification if we are to preserve the truth of the gospel for future generations. Even today, a correct understanding of justification distinguishes the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone from all false gospels of salvation based on works. Now, when Paul describes how God applies salvation to us, he explicitly mentions justification. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We find this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. The word called here refers to the gospel's effectual calling, which includes regeneration and proceeds our responses and produces our responses of repentance and faith, or should we say conversion uh, of this born-again experience. Now, following effectual calling and the response to it, which invokes us, uh, the next step in the application of redemption is justification. Now, here Paul mentions that God himself does this. Those whom he called, he also justified. So furthermore, Paul clearly teaches that this justification follows our faith and is God's response to our faith. Now, he claims that God justifies him 
who believes in Jesus. And we find this in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, and that a man is justified, uh, is justified apart from works of the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He says this, and we also get in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, furthermore, a man is justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we find that. Now, what exactly is justification? Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, considers our sins to be forgiven and Christ's righteousness to be ours. And second, declares us to be righteous in God's eyes. Now, the aspect of justification is which God declares us to be righteous in his sight according to the elements of this definition. The emphasis of the New Testament on the word justification and related terms is on the second half of the definition, that is God's legal declaration. However, there are passages that show that this declaration is founded on the fact that God first considers the righteousness to be ours. So even though the New Testament terms of justification focuses on God's legal declaration, both aspects must be addressed. So God's legal declaration is included in justification. So the word justify is used in the Bible to indicate the justification is a legal declaration made by God. See, the verb justify has several meanings in the New Testament, but one of the most common is to declare righteous. Now, when they heard this, all the people and the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Uh, for this we find in Luke chapter 7, verse 29. Now, of course, the people and the tax collectors did not make God righteous. That would be impossible for anyone to accomplish. Rather, they declared God to be just. And you can see that in the footnotes of your Bible. This is also the meaning of the term in the New Testament passages where God declares us righteous. This sense is especially evident in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. Now, and to one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Paul cannot mean that God makes the ungodly righteous by changing them internally and making them morally perfect because they would then have merit or works to rely on, would it not be? Rather, he means that God declares the ungodly righteous in his eyes, not because of their good works, but because of their faith. Now, when justification is contrasted with condemnation, it is clear that justification is a legal declaration. Now, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul asked. Who is to condemn when God justifies? Romans chapter 8, you can find this in verses 33 to 34. To condemn someone means to find them guilty. The, uh, in this context, it is evident that Paul's response 
is to the possibility of someone bringing an accusation or a charge against God's people. And such a declaration of guilt cannot stand in the face of God's declaration of righteousness. In some Old Testament examples of the word justify means to lend credence to this interpretation. So to read about judges who justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, for example, in Deuteronomy 25 verse 1, in this case, justify must mean to declare righteous or not guilty, just as condemn must mean to declare guilty. Now, it would be absurd to say that justify here means to make someone good inside, because judges do not and cannot make people good inside. A judge's act of condemning the wicked does not make that person evil on the inside. It simply declares that the person's guilty of the specific crime that has been brought before the court. And we can find this in Exodus chapter 23, verse 7, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 32, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 23. And similarly, we see this in Job refuses to acknowledge that his comforters were correct. Far be it from me to declare you right, Job chapter 27, verse 5, using the same Hebrew and Greek terms to, to the word justify. So, we can also look at Rome. Uh, uh, what about uh, Proverbs expresses the same sentiment? He who justifies the wicked and condemns the, uh, the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. And this is in uh, Proverbs chapter 20, 17, verse 15. So the concept of legal declaration is especially strong here. It would not be an abomination to the Lord if the word justify meant to make someone good or righteous on the inside. In that case, justifying the wicked would be very good in God's eyes. However, if justify means declare to the righteous, it is clear why who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. In addition, Isaiah condemns those who justify the wicked for a bribe. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 23, justify uh, must mean to declare to be righteous once more. Now, here used in the context of the a legal declaration, Paul frequently uses this word in a sense of to declare to be righteous or declare to be not guilty. To speak of God's justification of us, his declaration that we through uh, though guilty sinners are nonetheless righteous in his sight. It is a critical uh, point to emphasize that the legal declaration does not alter the internal nature or character in any way. So God makes a legal declaration about us in a sense of to justify. Now, this is why theologians have said that justification is the, a forensic uh, word, where forensic meaning pertaining to a legal proceeding. There is an important distinction to be made between regeneration and justification. Whereas regeneration is an act of God in us, justification is God's judgment on us. See the big difference? So the distinction is, uh, uh, is, is parallel to the distinction between a surgeon's act and a judge's act. 
So when a surgeon removes an inward cancer he affects, he, uh, that affects us, that is not what a judge does. He renders a decision on our legal standing. Now, if we are innocent and he declares it, the recognition of this, uh, this distinction is intrinsically uh, linked to the purity of the gospel. So when justification is confused with regeneration or commonly sanctification, the door is open for the gospel perversion. And we see this all the time. So the articles of the church standing or falling is still justification. Now, God declares us to be righteous in his eyes. God expressly declares in his legal declaration of justification that we are just in his eyes. Now, this declaration has two parts. First, he declares that there is no penalty for sin, including past, present, or future sins. Following a lengthy discussion of justification by faith alone in Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 5, uh, look at verse 21, and the parenthetical discussion of sin in Christian life. Paul returns to his main argument in the book of Romans and tells what is true of those that have been justified by faith. There, therefore, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So in this sense, those who are justified uh, do not have to pay a penalty for their sin. This means that we have not laid to be accountable or not held to be accountable for our actions. So who shall bring a charge against us? God's elect. And then who is there to condemn us when God justifies us? Romans chapter 8 verse 33. So when Paul discusses justification by faith in Romans chapter 4, the concept of full forgiveness of sin is prominent. According to Paul, David bestowed a blessing on someone to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. He then calls, uh, recalls David's words. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans chapter 4 verse 6 to 8. And as a result of this justification, it clearly includes the forgiveness of sins. How remarkable. Look at in Psalms chapter 103 verse 12. David said, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. However, verse 3, if God simply declared us to be forgiven for our past sins, would not be completely uh, resolve and solve the problems that it would only render us morally neutral before God. We would be in the same position as Adam before he did anything right or wrong in God's eyes. He was not guilty before God, but he had also not earned a record of righteousness before God. So this is the first component of justification. However, such a movement will not earn us God's favor. We must instead progress from the moral neutrality to positive righteousness before God. The righteousness of a life of perfect obedience to him. As a result, the second aspect of justification is that God must declare us to be righteous 
in his eyes rather than neutral. So in fact, he must declare that we have perfect righteousness before him. Now, the Old Testament describes God as bestowing righteousness onto his people, even though they had not earned it. Now, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. However, Paul addresses this specifically in the New Testament. Paul tells us that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for, for all who believe. Now, as a solution to our need for righteousness, as in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 22, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Now, this is he quoting uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, this was accomplished through Christ's obedience as Paul says that at the end of this lengthy discussion of justification by faith, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. So the second part of God's justification declaration is that we have the merits of perfect righteousness before him. However, questions arise. How can God declare that there is no penalty for sin and that we have the, per, the merits of perfect righteousness if we are in fact guilty sinners. How can God declare us not guilty, but righteous, righteous when we are actually unrighteous? So God can declare us righteous because he imputed us with Christ's righteousness. So when we say that God imputed Christ's righteousness to us, we mean that God considered Christ's righteousness to be ours or regards it as ours. He reckons it on our behalf. Abraham believed God and it, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We read in Romans chapter 4 verse 3, quoting uh, Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. So to one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Paul says also that uh, David bestowed a blessing on the man whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Romans chapter 4 verse 6. Christ's righteousness becomes ours in this way. According to Paul, we are the recipients of the free gift of righteousness. Romans chapter 5 verse 17. So the doctrines of scripture demonstrate the concept of imputing guilt or righteousness to another. So first, when Adam uh, sinned, his guilt was imputed to us. And God the Father saw it as ours. And so it was. Second, when Christ suffered and died for our sins, our sins was imputed to Christ. and God considered it to be his and he paid the penalty for it. So for the third time in the doctrine of justification, we see the imputation because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us and God considered it to be ours. It is not our own righteousness that is freely given to us, but Christ's righteousness. So as a result, Paul can say that God created Christ to be our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 
And Paul says that his goal is to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that is based on faith. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, you'll find that. Paul understands that the righteousness he possessed before God is not his own. It is the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And we find this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. It is the central to the gospel to insist that God declares us to be just as righteous, not on the basis of our actual state of righteousness or holiness, but rather on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, which he considers to be ours. Now, this is the crux of the Reformation's dividing between the Protestant and the Roman Catholicism. Since that time of Martin Luther, Protestantism has insisted that the justification does not change us internally and is not based on any goodness that we possess. If justification changed us internally and then declared us to be righteous based on how good we are or actually were, then firstly, we would never be able to be declared perfectly righteous in this life because sin is always present. And second, there is no provision for forgiveness of past sins committed before we were changed internally. And thus, we could never have the confidence that we have, we have right now standing before God. We would lose. And Paul's assurance when he says, therefore, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. If we consider, uh, consider justification to be an act of our own merit and our own work, something that we are uh, internally, uh, something to boast about, we would never be able to say with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We would have no assurance of God's forgiveness, no confidence in approaching him. With a true heart in full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10, verse 22 notes, we couldn't talk about the free gift of righteousness, as in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, or God's free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. There is no one that can ever make himself righteous before God. For no human being will be justified in the sight by his works of the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. So Paul goes on to say that since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 to 24. So God's grace is defined as his unmerited favor because we are unable to earn God's favor. The only way we can be declared righteous is if God freely provided salvation for us through grace, completely apart from our work. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this what it says, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not through works, least any man should boast. And this is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, Titus chapter 3, verse 7. Now, as 
the reason for God's willingness to justify us. Grace is clearly contrasted with works or merit. So God had no obligation to impute our sin to Christ or to impute Christ's righteousness to us. He did so only out of his unmerited favor. So God justifies us because of our belief in Christ. Now we mentioned earlier that uh, that justification comes after saving faith. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by our works of the law. Because by works of the law shall no one be justified, Paul states in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. So here Paul emphasizes that faith comes first and it is for the purpose of justification. He also claims that Christ must be received by faith and that God justifies him who believes in Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. So the entire chapter of Romans chapter 4 is devoted to arguing the, that we are justified by faith rather than works. Just as Abraham and David were, we are justified by faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Scripture never says that we are justified because of our our faith inherited goodness uh, as if faith has merit with God. It never allowed us to believe that our faith earned us favor with God. Rather, Scripture says that we are justified by means of our faith, which means that faith is the instrument through which we are justified, not as not act and actively that earns us a merit or favor with God, but rather that we are justified solely on the basis of Christ's merit. And we find this in Romans chapter 5, verse 17 to 19. But we might wonder why God chose faith as the attitude of the heart through which uh, we can obtain justification. Why would God not just decide to give justification to all those who truly love or those who display happiness or is in contentment or perhaps humility or is it wisdom? Well, why do God choose faith as a means of justification for us? Well, that's the question. Well, it appears to be because faith is the one heart attitude that is diametric, diametrically opposed to relying on ourselves. We essentially say, I give up. And when we come to Christ in faith, we will no longer rely on ourselves or our good works. No, I could never make myself righteousness in God's eyes. As a result, Jesus, I completely rely on you to give me righteous standing before God. And in this way, faith is the polar opposite of trusting in ourselves. And it is thus the attitude that perfectly fits salvation, which is entirely dependent on God's free gift of grace rather than our own merit. That is why it depends on faith, so that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his descendants. Now Paul explains in Romans chapter 4 verse 16, and this is why the reformers beginning with Martin Luther, we're adamant that justification comes through faith alone. 
not faith plus some merit or good works on our part. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not through works least any man should boast. No human being will be justified in the sight of, of works of law. Paul says repeatedly in Romans chapter 3 verse 20. The same idea is repeated in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, chapter 3 verse 11, chapter 5 verse 4. Well, I can hear one of my brothers say, well, is this however consistent with James' epistle? Well, what exactly does James mean when he says, you see a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. James chapter 2 verse 24. Well, we must recognize that James is using the word justified in a different context than Paul. We noted that at the beginning, uh, that the word justify has several meanings, one of which is to declare to be righteous. But we should also note that the Greek word can also mean to demonstrate or to show to be righteous. So you are uh, those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 16, verse 15. The point here was that the Pharisees went around making legal declarations that they were not guilty before God, but rather that they were constantly attempting, demonstrating to others that they were righteous through their outward actions. But God knows your heart, Jesus said, knowing that the, uh, the, the truth of what's there in Luke chapter 16, verse 15. So likewise, the lawyer who tested Jesus by asking what he must do to inherit eternal life correctly answered Jesus' first question. He was not satisfied when Jesus told him, do this and you will live. But he, desi he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor, says Luke, in Luke chapter 10, verse 28 to 29. He no longer desired to make a legal declaration about himself. He was not guilty in God's eyes. Rather, he desired to show himself righteous, righteous in front of others who were listening. So other passages that uses the word justify, uh, which means show to be righteous, include Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Luke chapter 7, verse 35, and Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Our interpretation of James chapter 2 is, uh, is predicated not only on the fact that to show to be righteous, it is valid sense of the word justified, but also on the fact that this sense fits well in context of James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? James asks in verse 21, he is referring to a later event in Abraham's life, the story of Isaac's sacrifice, which occurs in Genesis chapter 22. And this is a long time after Abraham believed God and as recorded in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. However, it is this earlier incident, inst, uh, incident that the start of Abraham's covenantal relationship with God 
that Paul quotes and refers to repeatedly in Romans chapter 4. So Paul is referring to the time when God justified Abraham once and for all, granting him righteousness as a result of his faith in God. However, James is referring to a much later time after Abraham had waited many years for the birth of Isaac and then after Isaac had grown old enough to carry up the wood uh, to the mountain for sacrifice. At this point, Abraham's works showed him to be righteous and James says that Abraham was justified by the works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar. James chapter 2 verse 21. So this understanding also applies that James's larger concern in this section, James's concern with demonstrating that mere intellectual agreement with the gospel constitutes a faith that is in fact no faith at all. He is concerned about arguing with those who profess faith but no change in their lives. So show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith through my works, he says in James chapter 2 verse 18. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. James chapter 2 verse 26. So James is simply stating that faith that produces no results or works is not true faith. It is dead faith. He is not denying Paul's uh, clear teaching that justification, a declaration of legal, or a right legal standing before God, is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Rather, he is affirming that a different truth, namely that justification in the sense of uh, an outward showing that one is righteous only occurs as we see evidence in a person's life. So to paraphrase James, uh, what we're looking at here is, is to show righteousness by his works, not solely by his faith. This is something that Paul would undoubtedly agree with in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, or Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 24. So the doctrine of justification by faith alone has far-reaching practical implications. For starters, this doctrine allows us to offer genuine hope to unbelievers who know they can never make themselves righteous before God. If salvation is a free gift to be received through faith alone, then anyone who hears the gospel can hope that eternal life is freely offered and can be obtained Secondly, this is a doctrine that gives us hope that God will never force us to pay the penalty for sins forgiven on Christ's merit. Of course, now we may continue to experience the normal consequences of sin. An alcoholic who quits drinking may still have the physical weakness or, uh, for the rest of his life or her life. And a thief who is justified may still go to jail or pay the penalty for his or her crimes. Well, furthermore, if we continue to act in the ways that are disobedient to him, as in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 5 to 11, God may discipline us out of love and for our own good. But God can never and will never act in vengeance and remove and bring in this past and make us pay for this penalty for, uh, to, to punish us 
out of his wrath and anger for the purposes of causing us harm. Therefore, it's so clearly and so beautifully stated. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. The fact should fill us with joy and assurance before God that we are accepted by Him and that we will always be not guilty and righteous before Him.